healing. Well, who doesn't need healing? So, but this is really a work in progress for me, probably this time next year. What I'm about to share might be a little bit different, I don't know, but please be a good Berean and check it out for yourselves. Um, in the beginning, God had a plan, and his plan was to allow his kingdom to be established. The kingdom was to be a perfect kingdom. It needed a supreme ruler, a king, and it needed subjects who by delegated authority would rule with power over their realm. This was God's kingdom plan. As we all know, the climax of God's six-day creation was when God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let him rule over all the earth. God blessed Adam and Eve again and said to them, be fruitful and increase and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over all living creatures that move along the ground. God's kingdom plan gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. To do this, God delegated his authority and power to them, but this came with responsibilities. God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over all creation. Adam and Eve had to be obedient and act on behalf of God not to replace God. Eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was forbidden. They had to work and take care of the Garden of Eden. God blessed them with a perfect creation and all they needed for eternal life through the tree of life, which grew in the garden. They enjoyed a perfect relationship with God, even walking in the garden with him. As long as this intimacy remained intact, God's blessings through the kingdom plan could flow. Death and disease were utterly unknown in God's kingdom, for God's creation was perfect. He said it was good. In fact, he said it was very good. But as we know, Adam and Eve rebelled. God was forced to banish them from the perfect garden, meaning they were now unable to eat from the tree of life. Adam and Eve were no longer God's trusted agents and had forfeited their special place in the kingdom plan. Sin had contaminated the whole creation and would infect all of Adam's descendants. God says in Romans 3 verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Furthermore, sin had dire consequences, namely death. God says in Romans 6 verse 23, For the wages of sin is death. Mankind, therefore, in contrast to the perfect Adam, was destined to spiritual and physical death. The kingdom plan had been disrupted and despoiled by the intrusion of sin, death and disease. Another word for disease is slow death, for that is what it really is. But God was not to be thwarted. Mankind needed to be set free from sin's death penalty before the kingdom plan could continue. God's answer to sin was his salvation plan, a plan to reverse the effects of sin. Calvary was God's climactic fulfilment of the salvation plan. Why did Jesus die? Jesus' death was God's salvation plan in action. In Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 5, we read that in Christ we have received every spiritual blessing as his adopted sons, declaring us holy and blameless. He died to save us from the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death. But as for release from physical death, that must wait until we are perfected. Salvation is also the doorway to receiving kingdom blessings. 
the cross has made the way to re-enter the kingdom of abundant life. Having been lost through sin, the blessings were again made available when Jesus became the perfect sin offering. Jesus has made possible intimate relationship with God once again. What are the kingdom blessings? God will provide all our essential needs of life as we see in, in Matthew 6, verse 31 to 33. So do not worry about what to eat, what to drink and what to wear. However, we do need to make him our first priority. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added. The second kingdom blessing is protection from harm, disaster and pestilence. The whole of Psalm 91 talks of God being our shelter and refuge. The third kingdom blessing is divine healing. As Jesus' ministry demonstrated, we can enjoy freedom from sickness and disease and reflect more of the kingdom blessings that, uh, uh, that Adam enjoyed. Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us that Jesus not only died for our sins but also for our sicknesses. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. The kingdom blessings are available to all those who have received salvation, but we do need to actively seek them. They are not automatically ours, and we are still impacted by a fallen world. So what are the keys to receiving kingdom blessings? Abiding in Jesus is the first key. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The second key is to recognise that in order to be blessed, we need to bless others. Jesus said in Matthew 10 verse 8, Freely you have received, freely give. Spread the blessing around and it will multiply. To be sons and daughters of the King is to be a giver, even a blesser, if there is such a word. Because we are saved and have entered the Kingdom of God, we should act like it is so. We have Christ's blessings over us, so let's believe it and give thanks. The third key is our dependency on Christ alone. Jesus wants us to be like him, but always dependent on him. God doesn't want us to do things in our own strength. We depend on God's miraculous power to work through us. The fourth key is to be a warrior for God against evil powers and principalities. Part of Christ's plan is to shame and humiliate Satan the usurper of, God's, usurper of God's glory and authority. Let us act as sons of God, for we should submit to Christ and to one another. Excuse my eye, I'm, I need healing. <laughs> I've got a blocked tear duct. This demonstrates the kingdom plan to the prince of this world, Satan. His disciples were called to use the keys of the kingdom to do God's will here on earth. In Matthew 16, verse 19, we read, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and, what, and whatsoever you loose on heaven will be loosed in heaven. The keys of the kingdom here infer a door. This door provides access to God's will in heaven. Then, in the power of the Holy Spirit, God's will can be done on earth binding the works of the evil one and loosing heaven's blessings just as God directs. 
We are called to, to disciple, to baptize, and to teach. We see this in Matthew 28, verse 18, when Jesus asked the believers to make disciples, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. As disciples, we have work to do, the Great Commission. Jesus commands us, his disciples, to preach the gospel and we will see the miraculous. In Mark 16, verse 15 to 18, Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Because the magnitude of this command to go into all the world was obviously beyond the original 12, 12 disciples, and likewise beyond even the 70 sent out after them, the Great Commission, in my opinion, is undeniably meant for today as well. And because healing is a sign of being a disciple, then we must conclude that healing is definitely for today. We have no choice in the matter. Healing is part of the job description for us as disciples. What is our purpose then? We can be excited because each one of us has a God-given purpose, as Jesus has just commanded, to make disciples and to pray for the sick and the demon-possessed. When we obey Jesus and do his will as his disciples, we are actually representing him through his delegated authority. This means we are his ambassadors on earth because we represent the king and his kingdom, demonstrating the kingdom promises. When we see healing, we can say, the kingdom has come to you, Luke 10 verse 9. What is our role then? Our role is to do as Jesus did. Because Jesus himself is not here in the body, we, as his body, are to do as he did. It is God's power and authority that enables us to take up our role as disciples. This means we can choose to take up the kingdom promises and claim the blessings available to us. We are called to do greater works for the Father's glory too. Jesus said in John 14 verses 12 to 13, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. We are instructed to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, to be his ministers wherever there is a need. What do we need to carry this out? We need a simple faith. A faith in God and not a faith in our own faith. We need faith in his power, not in our own resources. In the healing of the crippled beggar at the beautiful gate, we read Peter's words in Acts 3 verse 12. Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? 
why do you stare at us if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him. To do astounding works in the name of Jesus is not dependent on human wisdom. How much faith do we need to believe for our own healing or belief for others to be healed? Jesus gave the answer in Matthew 17, verse 20. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But what is mustard seed faith? A mustard seed starts small and grows into something big, so too with faith. Faith can start small and grow. Faith is belief. We either believe or we don't. So we do need some faith. However, no matter how much faith we have, it can still grow. What is faith? Quoting Hebrews 11, verse 1, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Is our confidence placed in the word of God? Do we allow him to heal in his way, which might involve healing the inner man before the physical, and even then not an instantaneous healing, but gradual? Or, on the other hand, do we put all our confidence in medical reports in, seeing, in things we can see? <coughs> to see God move in power, we need a simple faith. I have four examples of this simple faith at work the first example is when the 72 returned with their amazing stories of the moves of God. Jesus cautioned them as recorded in Luke 10, verse 21. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for that is what you were pleased to do. So to have simple faith, we need to be humble. Obadiah 1 verse 3 says, Humble yourselves under the, the mighty hand of God. To be humble, we must not limit God. Self-sufficiency and faith in man's knowledge can act against faith. Do you place all your faith in a doctor because he's had six years of medical training and believe him when he gives you six months to live? Faith in the promises of God is a better way. His word says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Seek medical advice for sure, but after God's confirmation. My second example of simple faith is Luke 18, verse 42, when Jesus said to the blind man, Receive your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and began following Jesus, glorifying God. In Matthew 9, verse 21, we also read of a simple faith. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. These people had no doubt that Jesus could do it. What gave these people great faith? They heard and saw the demonstration of instantaneous healing. They had to believe that if God can do it for others, he can do it for me. In the fourth example from Acts 5, 
verses 15 and 16, we see many being healed in one event as Peter's shadow fell on them. Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Wow, <laughs> just by a shadow. But the Holy Spirit was moving, obviously. Did Peter have a special anointing? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit was most definitely upon him in great power. God's power works in us through the gifts of the Spirit. God has given us the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we can be effective surgeons, so that we can be effective servants. We have a responsibility as children of the King to move in the gifts out of compassion for the suffering and as a demonstration of God's power to lead people to salvation. What does God say about his power working through us? Acts 1 verse 8, we read, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 20, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. As God's servants, we each have power to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead and cast out demons. We must rediscover that power today. It has been lost through doubt and unbelief. In the Western world, most of the church believes that gifts are only available to a handful of Christians. But the power to see people healed is available to all Christians. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. The kingdom of God is also the same forever. His message is the same forever. The gift of healing is the same forever. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 4, the Apostle Paul said, And my speech and my preaching are not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So we see here that Paul claimed that the key to his preaching was not clever, culturally acceptable words and ideas, Rather, the key to his preaching was the demonstration of the power available to heal the sick and cast out demons. But there's a warning against pride. The gifts are free to every believer. The gifts are not for self-indulgence and self-glorification, but for God's glory. We must see the gifts as tools for serving God, not tools to promote self-importance. The Bible warns us to be sober in the use of the gifts. In Luke Luke 10 verses 19 to 20 warns against pride. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Luke is warning us that there are subtle dangers connected with success in Christian service whereas the fact that Jesus has saved us reminds us of our infinite debt to him. All the gifts are available to all believers. Any one believer can be operating in more than one gift. 
We think about someone having a gift of healing or a gift of prophecy. But in reality, a believer can operate in any of the gifts according to the ministry need at the time. Then this glorifies God, the true giver of the gift, not the person upon whom the gift has been bestowed. There are two gifts operating at the same time. Example, healing. There can be two gifts operating at the same time, like healing and the word of knowledge. They can work together. A word of knowledge can bring faith for physical healing. God heals when we are persistent. We see this in Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. What do we do when God does not heal instantaneously? Don't give up. Lack of physical evidence doesn't mean we are not being healed. Healing may be progressive as we persevere in faith. In Mark 8, verse 24, we read that when Jesus healed a blind man, Jesus prayed it the first time, and the man looked up and replied, I see people, they look like trees walking around. So Jesus prayed again, and the man could then see clearly, it's not wrong to keep praying. Don't give up, don't lose faith. Is healing the will of God? I believe that God is never, never the author of sickness and that ultimately sickness can be traced back to the fall. Therefore, it is God's will to always heal. How do we know? First, we need to know where sickness has come from. Look at heaven. There's no sickness in heaven. God does not want sickness here on earth. In the Lord's Prayer, we read, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Second, look at the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were in perfect health without sickness, pain or suffering, until the fall. God gave man the choice. Man shows sickness through disobedience and is therefore responsible, not God. Third, look at the life of Jesus. Jesus is the will of the Father in action and in person. What did Jesus do on earth? He healed all. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That's John 6, verse 38. Jesus came to bless, never to cause sickness. Fourth, look at the word of God. The wages of sin is death. Sickness is slow death. Death came through sin, and sin came from the fall. As Christians, and particularly because we are Christians, we need to be sure in our understanding that God is not the author of sickness. Why? because this is a question that most unsaved people grapple with. Uh, if God is a God of love, why is there sickness, pain and suffering? Our ability to witness is compromised if we are unsure how to answer this. Does God send sickness to test us and, and refine us? Most of us think of the story of Job in answer to this question. We, re we read how Job was struck with painful boils and that he lost his family and all his possessions. But did God cause his suffering? God didn't cause Job's, uh, Job's catastrophes. It was Satan. Satan confronted God and asked to strike everything that Job had. In answer to this, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself... Do not lay a finger. That can be found in Job 1, verse 12. So we see here that God did not cause Job's suffering, 
but he allowed it. Satan can bring those sufferings on a believer only with God's permission. Despite all that happened to Job, he still trusted in God and God rewarded him. His prosperity was restored. He was given twice as many sheep, camels and oxen as before, as well as being given seven sons and three daughters. He was really blessed. He lived an additional 140 years. When he died, he didn't die of sickness. He just went to be with the Lord. We read in Job 42, verses 10 to 17, and in all this, Job did not curse God as Satan said he would. Wouldn't it be great if Christians could be transported to heaven when it's their time, not suffering from a chronic illness, but being in good health at the time of death? Now, I have some little experience, I guess, of sickness and a little bit of healing. This is my story, or very, very abbreviated. About 25 years ago, I attended a service at St Mark's Emerald. At that stage, this church was experiencing renewal and operating in the gifts of the Spirit. For 15 years, I'd been suffering from an eye muscle complaint, which meant I couldn't coordinate my eyes. I went forward for prayer and received an instantaneous healing, not complete, but about 60 to 80% of full eye movement coordination returned. And that was, that was instantaneous. The second healing concerns my diagnosis with a lymphatic cancer and given a four to seven year life expectancy. I was diagnosed 17 years ago, so obviously I'm still around. And the four to seven years life expectancy, well, I think was probably correct, but you'll see what happened. The cancer turned out to be untreatable by orthodox medicine. God led me in an amazing way to Christians who used nutritional therapies. At the same time, I went for prayer at a Sri Lankan church in Mount Waverley where healings had been taken place. As I was prayed for, the pastor had a word for me, this sickness is not unto death. <coughs> this is an example of a word of knowledge and the gift of healing working together. This word gave me hope and faith, which I clung on to, and I claimed at any time my faith was waning, which was uh, pretty frequently. <laughs> I went, to be, I went to a Christian health retreat where I learned and put into practice lifestyle principles. I came home refreshed, full of hope and, physic and physically re-energised. Now I had to embark on a lifestyle change of diet and good nutritional habits. I majored on eating yuck, raw plant foods, drinking filtered water and vegetable juices, exercising and avoiding toxins. Sorry, Cheryl. <laughs> she was a naturopath and oversaw all of this work. <laughs> but it has done me a world of good, I can assure you, and now I'm a creature of habit, so it doesn't worry me. In the case of cancer, God showed me that my healing would come about by natural and supernatural means working together. Naomi, at the age of eight, had a word for me. She said, Dad, I think your healing is going to be like Naaman's. He had to do stuff. He had to wash in the river seven times. That's like you doing all the stuff you do. That sure was. The story of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5 shows us that sometimes there's a process involved in healing. God may require us to do certain things. He requires our obedience to do these things. 
I had to act in perseverance and do what God showed me to do. And within 12 months, I was feeling better. The spleen and lymph nodes had gone back to normal size and physical examination showed no sign of the cancer. This is my health report as of today. And to this day, I still eat foods from God's garden and follow healthy living and lifestyle principles. We should live according to kingdom principles. One of the kingdom principles of right living is to recognise that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we have a responsibility to look after our bodies. That seems quite logical, I think. We need to show wisdom in not polluting the temple. In the Old Testament, God gave health laws to the Israelites. Just because they were in the Old Testament, does that mean that health rules are not applicable today? In the Old Testament, we read that lepers were quarantined. This rule was given long before the discovery of contagious diseases. This law reflects God's wisdom. We need his wisdom in caring for our bodies. Could it be that there are health hazards in the modern-day Western society? Sure are. Could Christians avoid them by seeking God's wisdom? Yes, I believe so. If we listen to God, he has things to say to us about healthy lifestyle. We need to stay fit to serve, to serve the king. Now, Cheryl has written a health um, sort of guidelines program, which is coming up, I think. The health retreat that God led me to as part of my healing process taught me to follow eight guidelines for good health. We've gleaned these over, well, it's 18 years ago since my cancer. So, yeah, it's been a journey. And, uh, and Cheryl's been an amazing, amazing support. She's led me in, the, in this way. I was quite blotto with cancer. So uh, all credit goes to her for devising this as a teaching um, um, program, I guess you'd say. The first guideline is nutrients. N stands for nutrients, obviously. Not everything we uh, eat can be classified as nutrients. There are some so-called foods that are actually detrimental to our health. If we look back to the Garden of Eden, we see the best food that God has provided for us. There was no sugar in the Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. no processed refined foods, no artificial food additives. Pity, pity. <laughs> In order to stay healthy, we need to maximise the nutrient value of natural foods and avoid the foods which create a nutrient deficit. Guideline number two. This is very harsh, isn't it? E for exercise, both cardio and weight-bearing. Guideline number three, water. That's pretty basic, but uh, we need six to eight glasses every day and it should be, well, filtered, I would, I'd suggest, or as pure as possible minus the fluoride and the chlorine. <laughs> I'm laying down the law here, aren't I? <laughs> I hope I... Well, where's the escape door? Yeah. Um, <laughs> guideline four, S for sunlight. Not only for vitamin D, but also for emotional health. Guideline five, it's T for toxic substances to be minimised. Many foods contain substances that would never be classified as toxic, yet, if consumed over the long term, they certainly are. For example, sugar 
and even worse, oh, artificial sweetness. Aspartame is a carcinogenic. Don't take Diet Coke. <laughs> there are toxins. There are toxins everywhere in the modern world, from foods to cleaning products and industrial chemicals. We can't avoid them all, but we can do our best. And we went through our house. I tell you, cleaned all those things out. Guideline number six: A for fresh air. Number seven is R for rest. Not only adequate sleep, but also absence of stress. Guideline eight is thinking happy thoughts. So that's a T, and trusting in God. Another T. That spells new start, and we can have a new start in our life. Many Christians think that because God is looking after us, we are invincible. But can we put everything into? Can we put anything into our bodies and expect to be protected? And that's a very good question. God's promise of protection is not a license for excess. We shouldn't put God to the test regarding unhealthy lifestyle. When Jesus said to the disciples in the Great Commission, "You can tread on serpents and drink poison without being harmed," he wasn't expecting the disciples to deliberately go out and drink poison and tread on snakes. This protection applies to times. When we face unavoidable danger, if we look at the Garden of Eden once again, we see Adam and Eve living in perfect health. It's not possible today to completely reclaim the perfect, unpolluted foods available to Adam and Eve, but through wisdom we can do our best. In looking after our bodies, we need wisdom and truth. We need discernment when it comes to the advertising and marketing surrounding us. If we listen to God, He can show us the way in which we are to walk. Otherwise, to quote Isaiah four verse six, we perish through lack of knowledge. In a similar vein, we read in First Corinthians ten verse twenty three, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And I have struggled with that one. With knowledge comes responsibility to live a kingdom lifestyle. If we expect to serve God to the end of our days, we need to be healthy and fit, not chronically ill and a burden to those who have to care for us. So far, I've only covered wisdom in looking after this temple, but there are, of course, other kingdom living principles such as the Ten Commandments and the commandments that Jesus gave us to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself. People who have hearts full of hate, bitterness, and unforgiveness set themselves up with a recipe for ill health. As well as physical healing, there are spiritual and emotional healings. Again, I'd like to share about a time in my life when God healed me in these areas. Before I became a Christian, and before Cheryl and I met and got married, I had been entrapped in a cult for 13 years. This was a yoga group. And was led by a real dinky dye Indian guru. He taught the pure meaning of yoga, which, as any dictionary will confirm, it is the uniting or merging of the human spirit with the universal cosmic, cosmic consciousness. Hard to get your tongue around these things. These ideas I've left well in the distant past. Can't even pronounce them now. Yeah, the merging of the self being lost in the infinite cosmic consciousness. 
Now I know that self-annihilation, but to all those bewitched peoples we all were, mainly uh, uni graduates, about 200 of us, too many brains and qualifications and not enough um, common sense, I now say. Um, true yoga always involves more than exercise. Yoga taps into the spirit realm and actually is Hinduism minus the overtly religious trappings. So it's more deceptive, passes under the radar. It's in schools everywhere. As in all cults, there was control and manipulation. I eventually lost my individuality and was unable to think for myself. I could talk for hours on that one. But one day, like a lightning bolt, God showed me the truth. I felt an absolute compulsion to leave the cult, which had mesmerized, mesmerized my life for 13 years. This I did, but was left with feelings of betrayal, emotional numbness and mental exhaustion. I was unable to think even about simple tasks. If this wasn't enough, a few months later, my feelings of overwhelming grief and loss were compounded when I went through the Ash Wednesday bushfires of 1983. The tragedies I experienced firsthand further reduced me as a person. I still remember saying to myself, this has got to be the year zero in my life. Surely a new beginning was the only possibility now. The, fi the fiery inferno had eradicated my former life. That life was now a past life. Whatever lay before me could only be better. And indeed, this was to be the case. God not only brought me to himself, a spiritual healing, but also restored me to emotional health. This was through the ministry of the Anglican Church in Pakenham. Soon after giving my life to the Lord, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This experience really represented the biggest leap forward in my restoration. But my restoration didn't end there. Like Job, God restored me in so many ways. He blessed me by restoring my profession when I was invited to design the church to replace the chapel lost in the Upper Beaconsfield fires. This led to my meeting Cheryl, the church pianist. We got married, so I was doubly blessed through marriage and children too. Instead of my complete subjugation to a guru, I now had a galaxy of blessings through Jesus Christ, whom I'm convinced does indeed cause all things to work together for good for, good for those who love him. I'm convinced that Psalm 103 must have been put in the Bible just for me. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all my sins, who heals all my diseases, who redeems my life from the pit, has crowned me with love and compassion, satisfies all my desires so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. In conclusion, there's one thing that stands out. Above everything else, my personal healing experience is one of God's overwhelming goodness in restoring someone who was lost in all the meanings of the word, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. We must believe that God only wants the best for us in all times and in all circumstances. Not that God has to answer prayer, but he does. Not that God has to heal, but he does. Healing then is not a divine obligation. It's a divine gift, an act of grace. In John 1, 
um, no, not First John, chapter five, verse fourteen. I can, I'm getting confused. <laughs> Anyhow, somewhere there in John, we read of the confidence we have in making our requests known to the Father. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have what we ask of him. We should never doubt God's heart. It is always to love. And isn't healing an expression of God's love for us? Amen.